The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Who do you think you are prescribing unnecessary medications for my patients? It wasn't unnecessary. If you believe that, you're incompetent or perhaps malfunctioning. I was simply trying to increase our allocation of resources. What are you talking about? I did some checking. Last month, Level Blue's total medication requests were down by 6%. Because our cure rate was higher. Exactly. Because you performed so efficiently last month, the allocator will determine you're able to do with less next month. If we don't order more medication now, we may not get it when we need it. Think about it, doctor. If you don't have the proper resources, your cure rate could go down. If that happens, the allocator may assign you to a lower level. Mm -hmm. Are we having a problem with our newest piece of technology? Actually, he seems to be learning the system quite well. London. It is Thursday, August 13, 2009. I'm Bob Metz and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color and color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today where 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on our conversation today, which will be all about the state of health care, both in this country and in the United States, of course. You must have seen what was going on in the U.S. this week, uh, particularly on CNN, which I got to see actually this week, ironically, because I've been homesick this past week. Those of you who tuned in to last week's show may have noticed it was a repeat. And uh, actually, the first time I've even had a cold or a flu, I kid you not, since uh, it must be about 10 years, at least anything that stopped me from doing what I would normally do. So a little bit of an irony there, and I'm still not quite over it, so I hope I hang in there for the hour, and it'll also be with you next week. But I did get a chance, fortunately, uh, while I was home this week, I didn't even know all this was going to be going on. CNN was running a full day. Um, debates on the healthcare situation in the U.S. and um, uh, giving full attention to it. I hadn't seen CNN do something like that unless they cover a war or a 9-11 event or something like that. But nonetheless, that's what they did, and I managed to tape all of it. I haven't digitized it yet, but I'll tell you, we're going to come back to some of those, and I'll be using some outtakes. There were some incredible things said um, on a future show, not today. Today I wanted to do an overview of the situation. So we'll call today uh, part one of several. Not that I'll be doing them consecutively week by week, but we will certainly pick up on this uh, maybe next time in two weeks, three weeks. And just amazing how emotional and involved people are about this. They certainly sense there's something extraordinarily important about this. I was noticing uh, just August 12th, um, that's yesterday, the sure truth in healthcare, says Lori Goldstein, is that politicians lie. And he, he concludes that editorial in the free press yesterday 
by saying that instead of addressing these substantive issues about health care, politicians on both sides of the border simplistically demonize Canadian and U.S. health care, respectively, as socialism and or capitalism run amok. In other words, they lie. Well, um, I understand what he's saying, and I think he's making a point, but not quite focused where I would be. I would say there are no good guys in the current debate over government-funded health care and read insurance. On the one side, you have the out-and-out, yes, socialists and communists who think that government should run 100% of the show. While on the other side, we have the public-slash-private partnership advocates, uh, which is not capitalism. Uh, saying that their solution is the right one. And, of course, that's more what has been in the past referred to as the system of fascism, where you have government and state working together. Some people used to call that state capitalism, which is incorrect. Both of those approaches, I think, are wrong. But whether you believe that or not, or whether you side with one side or the other, I think it all depends on what you expect your health care system to be, or the health care system we're talking about to be. The one side the side that doesn't even get to play in the healthcare system, but the one that's blamed for the failure of all the rest is capitalism and the totally free from government free enterprise system. That's who's taken the, the heat on this, even though there is no capitalism in either healthcare system south of the border or north of the border, and that's what we're going to spend our, a lot of our time today to demonstrate. So, you know, there's not one advocate of a purely free system in the whole wider public arena anywhere that I'm I'm aware of. I mean, there's a handful of individuals like myself doing so, but they're few and far between. And ironically, I think it's the solutions of the free market that are the cure to health care. But in today's climate, the objective is not better health care, but free doctoring paid at someone else's expense. And that's what the, the debate is all about. And whenever government is involved, whether 100% or only 10% or 50%, you're talking about a partnership in which one of those partners has a gun and the other is unarmed and incapable of defending itself. And this is no partnership by any stretch of the word, even less so when that partnership is mandated by government in the first place. A shotgun wedding, so to speak. Except in this case, one is literally <laughs> marrying the shotgun. So for me, a lot of the frustration I experience when doing a subject like this is trying to compare two supposedly different points of view that are actually the same. So what I've done now, I've got, a whole, I've got more information I can possibly uh, put through the show today, but we're going to see how many we can, of these uh, clippings and articles I can get through with some commentary on the side. And, um, you know, it was... Uh, I always like to start... I have talked about... Uh, healthcare on the show before, but not in the kind of detail I want to get into now. Whenever I do, I like to bring up this particular quote. And so if you've heard this before, you might have heard it on this show, you might have heard me even reading it on another program, because I've done that as well. And because it was actually written in July, on July 1st, 1962. Oh, interesting, Canada's birthday. And it was about the first socialized medical system in North America which happened to be Saskatchewan when it introduced full-scale socialized medicine throughout the province under then-premier Woodrow St. Lloyd, Woodrow S. Lloyd, sorry. In a June 1962 essay entitled Doctors and the Police State, Dr. Leonard Peikoff, and, that, Peikoff, and that's of philosophy, not of medicine, 
uh, predicted the following. And this is, if this isn't, doesn't sound familiar to you, and remember, this was written in 1962, basically just as socialized medicine made its first appearance, full socialized medicine in North America. And he wrote this, quote, What will happen to the caliber of medical practice in this country if the socialists take over? Consider the reports coming out of England, Holland, Hungary, and all the rest of the countries which have embraced socialized or semi-socialized medicine. The degrees and details vary. The essence of the pattern remains the same. First, the government announces free medical care for everyone. Then there is a sudden, insatiable, endless stampede as maligners, neurotics, and the authentically sick all clamor in one howling mass for medical attention. Then the doctors, crushed by the impossible overloads, abandon in despair the attempt to treat each patient's problem thoroughly and conscientiously. Increasingly, doctors turn into traffic directors, routing people out of their offices in three to five minute appointments per patient, making instantaneous diagnoses, dispensing routine prescriptions, and then calling for the next man. Meanwhile, the bureaucrats, dismayed by the endless flow of money pouring into the bottomless pit of patients, begin to clamp down more and more severely. The doctors who use expensive new techniques or exceed their quota of drugs are fined for wasting the people's resources. That's exactly the example we heard from Star Trek uh, Voyager at the opening of the show. And he says, the restrictions and forms and triplicate multiply. The doctors become part-time clerks. The bureaucrats and their friends multiply. The doctors begin to check a patient's political contacts before they prescribe. And in the end, the patients who have no contacts but really need medical attention start running to non-socialized countries if they can find any. Now, that was written, end quote, at a time when no one in North America had that experience or really knew about it, and now we read about it in the papers virtually daily. So let us now turn our attention south of the border where President Obama is intent on, quote, unquote, reforming the American health care system for the worse, I think. Uh, You know, from the proverbial frying pan into the fire, as they say. Here's one from The Economist, June 30th, 2007, entitled... Economic focus, an unhealthy burden. America's healthcare market is not as unfettered as it seems, argues the economist. And they write that, quote, to many outside the U.S., America's healthcare system might seem an example of capitalism at its rawest. So, is America's healthcare system really red in tooth and claw? Hardly, according to a growing body of academic evidence. As a result of interference in the federal and state levels, healthcare is one of America's most heavily regulated industries. In a path-breaking 2003 study called A Review and Synthesis of the Costs and Benefit of Health Service Regulations by Christopher Conover of Duke University, researchers looked at the many ways in which the American legal and regulatory system affect the provisions of health services and lumped them into five categories. Medical torts, the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, uh, insurance regulation, and the certification, certification of both health professionals and health facilities. His team concluded that the overall benefit to society of $170 billion per year delivered by this system of oversight was far outweighed by the $339 billion in annual costs that it imposed. Even ignoring the cost of big federal tax breaks for employer-sponsored health insurance, which the study left out, 
It was estimated that the net cost of America's health regulations resulted in perhaps 4,000 extra deaths each year and was responsible for more than 7 million Americans lacking health insurance. So, so here's the economist arguing that the reason so many Americans don't have health insurance is because of regulations. And The Economist also reports on a then forthcoming paper by Michael Cannon of the Cato Institute, which investigated, quote, the biggest federal component of this regulatory burden, the FDA's oversight of pharmaceuticals, arguing that the agency is too slow and demands too much testing, ultimately harming consumers. While most people are concerned that the FDA may approve a drug too quickly, only to find out it is dangerous or even deadly. And yet, the second and probably bigger risk of leaving people untreated because of restrictions on drugs rarely gets the regulators into trouble. Concludes the economist, if America's health care regulations are as costly as they claim, the system is merely masquerading as a free market model and may be no better than others, end quote. And then there's a June 20th London Free Press article by Lisa Van Dusen, Healthcare, Reform Obama's Headache where she reports on two polls, um, the NBC and Wall Street Journal poll and the, and the uh, New York Times CBS poll, in which respondents, quote, listed health care below jobs and the deficit as a concern, end quote. More than three quarters in the uh, two polls said it's important for Americans to have a choice between a public and government-run insurance plan and a private one. This will be the most contentious issue in the debate because it poses the greatest threat to the profit-driven health insurers who have the most to lose from reform, who have thwarted every previous attempt at it, and who are largely to blame for the fact that America spends more than twice as much on health care than other industrialized countries. And uh, by the way, point, let's be careful what she's saying here. This is health care, not health care, but insurance to which she's referring to. And people get those two things confused as if they're one and the same all the time. But she continues. Uh, she says they're also largely responsible in collusion with politicians whose campaigns they funded. Notice who, get, who she's given the, the, uh, the, the blame to. It's the capitalist who wants profit, who's the bad guy. But he's being bad because he's in collusion with politicians whose campaigns they funded. But that's just sort of like a footnote to the whole thing, right? When in fact that's the problem. Um, but effectively, she says, uh, they're in collusion with them for the effective logic blackout in the public discourse that has kept them in an, in an inefficient and highly profitable business for this long. The other messaging obstacle is that there's a coverage gap between politicians, opinion leaders, and cultural elites who shape the debate. The people doing most of the talking don't know firsthand just how bad the system is, because for them, it isn't, <laughs> end quote. And then there's a National Post, May 7, 2009. Canadian star in U.S. ads decrying health care. Dying on waiting lists by Tom Blackwell. Re read the headline. In which it is reported that uh, Dr. Brian Day, former president of the CMA, Canadian Medical Association, has appeared in a U.S. television ad that says, quote, patients here are languishing, suffering, and even dying on waiting lists as a conservative lobby group ramps up the debate of health reform in the United States. The ad cites alleged problems with the British and Canadian systems. Quote, patients are languishing and suffering on wait lists, Dr. Day says. Our own Supreme Court of Canada has stated patients are actually dying waiting for care. The ad is a preemptive strike in the brewing debate over Mr. Obama's plan to reform health care to ensure the 45 million Americans with no health insurance now gain coverage. 
The president has specifically stated, though, that he was not contemplating a Canadian-style system. Said Michael McBain, spokesman for the Canadian Health Coalition, a union-backed advocate of the Medicare system, quote, it's quite galling and quite outrageous, quite frankly, to have the past president of the Canadian Medical Association misrepresenting Canada's health care system in the United States. I just really think it's important that the American people realize Brian Day is not the voice of Canadians, end quote. Well, then Mr. McBain must be really upset when the voice of Brian Day is supported by... Albert Schumacher, MD, former president of the Canadian Medical Association from 2004 and 5, and the Ontario Medical Association in 2000 and 2001, who adds in a letter to the editor entitled U.S. Health Advantage, and this is in the National Post, May 27. In Canada, he writes, 70% of health care is publicly funded, while the remaining 30% comes from private sources. In Europe, the public share is frequently 80% despite the coexistence of a private system. Patients in both Canada and the United States suffer from a shortage of physicians, nurses, and other healthcare professionals. In Canada, there are 2.1 physicians per thousand population. In the United States, the number is 2.5, and the European Union boasts 3.0. That's an interesting fact, isn't it? That uh, they have the same shortage problems in the U.S., and yet we still have you know, Canadian doctors going down there. What are they, why are they going there? And um, he continues and writes here, and this again is, is from the letter to the editor, attacks on the American Medical Associ- Association are wildly misplaced. For decades, the AMA has advocated for health insurance for all Americans and has been a consistent on funding the uninsured and underinsured. Despite this, the U.S. government has cut patient payments under Medicare to hospitals and doctors every single year for the last decade. Despite its many problems, the United States may still be the best place to be sick. Cancer patients there enjoy the highest survival rate anywhere in the world, even including, listen to this, uninsured patients. Let us in Canada be very careful to measure, understand, and correct our own problems and deficiencies before we begin to criticize others and hold ourselves up as beacons. In Canada, the problem is the mythical government promises of Medicare, comprehensiveness, universality, portability, public administration, and accessibility that clash with patients, patients' families, and health care providers' reality, struggling through queues, wait times, and rationing. And in this very strange headline, quote, Obama defends Canada's Medicare, National Post July 2nd by Sheldon Alberts, Uh, It says, President Blast's health reform scare tactics. And it reads, with Congress struggling to meet an August deadline for passage of comprehensive legislation to overhaul America's privately run system, which it is not, but that's, again, another misrepresentation. Mr. Obama said critics were distorting his proposal with false claims that he was planning to impose a government-only plan on patients, end quote. Now... If you can call America's system privately run, then Canada's system is privately run as well. In fact, if you think about it, all doctors are quote-unquote private. The system actually being referred to is a government-controlled and regulated system. Uh, Or is the writer speaking about the insurance system? There's actually no distinction being made as if both were the same thing. But even more interestingly, if Obama is not planning a single-payer system, then how can the headline read, uh, Obama defends... Canada's Medicare. I mean, he doesn't 
support Canada's Medicare system at all. Mr. Obama has, quote, largely avoided specific references to Canada's health care system. Uh, here again, doesn't sound exactly like a defender of our system, does he? As he attempts to build support for his own health care proposals, emphasizing he favors a made-in-America solution, where a government-operated insurance plan complements coverage offered by existing private insurers. Just last week, congressional Republicans invited Dr. David Gratzer, a Canadian-born physician who has become a leading critic of the Canadian system as their expert witness before a House committee studying U.S. reform proposals. I understand the belief that government expansion will be compassionate and will increase the quality. I understand that because I used to believe it too, Dr. Gratzer testified. I was born and raised in Canada. I too believed in some level of socialized medicine. Then I got mugged by reality, and I've seen the waiting lists and the queues for care and how unsatisfying it is. Mr. Obama, however, says opponents are using, quote, tired arguments that bear, quote, no resemblance to the plan he is offering Americans. Mr. Obama has also repeatedly rejected calls from a single-payer advocates to make the U.S. government the only health care insurers in the country. Again, if he's doing that, he wouldn't be supporting Canada's system, at least Ontario's. That's what we've got. The U.S. president says he wants lawmakers to design a public health insurance options as a means to provide universal coverage to Americans who either lack employer-paid insurance or cannot afford a private plan. The government system would force private insurers to lower costs and prevent companies from denying coverage to people who have pre-existing health conditions, a common practice in the United States, end quote. And of course, that's what I heard him saying the other day, and, and my goodness, that's probably the worst thing you could possibly do. But we'll get into more detail on that later. going to take a quick break here. And what you'll hear on the other side coming back from the bumper is, uh, is, it might sound a little bit fuzzy. I dug it up from an old 1992 McNeil-Lair broadcast in the U.S. when they were discussing this, yeah, way back in 1992. And guess who happens to be on the show? Uh, none other than Ontario Premier at the time, Bob Ray. So we'll be back in about five minutes and continue the discussion then. But I, I think the worst thing, though, is letting them fool around with our health care system. Because that's what makes us better than the Americans, huh? Everybody here, if you're sick, you can get treated. Anybody ever been to the, the, the hospital in the States? If you don't have the winning 649 ticket in your pocket, don't go in. Because they bill you like you've ordered Chinese food, don't they? They charge you for everything. They charge $11 for a Tylenol. Can you believe that? $11? If I pay $11 for a little tiny white pill, it better make me see and hear Jimi Hendrix. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if I'm not hallucinating, I'm stabbing a nurse. Simple as that, okay? But here in Canada, we're spoiled. Here we don't have to pay for anything. Here if you're having a heart transplant, you walk in, you hand them your card, and they're like, well, it is $13 a day for your TV. And we're like, ah, oh, what a ripoff! Well, it better have cable. I'm voting NDP next election. That's all I'm saying. If it works for them, I'm not going to tell them they ought to change. I do think that they are beginning and will continue to see some fraying at the edges. It's 20 years out. Some of their capital structure is going to start to show signs of wear and tear. And, of course, their baby boomer generation is just beginning to hit uh, their own 
country. But again, if it's for them, sure. that's their business. But let's go to some of the basic underpinnings of, the, of that system and uh, as how it applies to the debate that's going on in the United States, the political debate. And it's not only a political debate, I think you would agree, it's a debate that's going on not only among the politicians, but among uh, everybody in the country. Now, the question that I raised and that he raised was the issue of the right. In other words, in Canada, the decision has been made by society that everybody has a right to health care across the board. Now, that decision has not been made in the United States. Is, is, is that correct? Well, in the sense of does the government guarantee that you will have insurance or that you will have coverage? No, we certainly have not made that kind of decision. What we have said, and what President Bush has announced, is that the government ought to make sure that poor people have access to insurance and that the barriers that exist that keep the rest of us from sometimes getting insurance or knowing we'll have it have to be broken down. But our whole concept of a public-private partnership is a very fundamental way we look at social services. Canada has no private universities. The whole notion of wiping out private higher education, doing away with that public-private partnership, would I think strike people as being very strange indeed. It really is a very different view. What's the role of government? How do we best respond to the needs of our citizens? I think there are very few people who would want government controlling 12% of our gross national product and everything that means in terms of responsiveness. Well, Mr. Ray, isn't she right that before you get to health care, Specifically, you have to yeah. take one step backward to the political philosophy that guides your country vis-a-vis -vis what guides this country. Well, I I think the issue is is I think the issue is is one of values in part, but it's also one, frankly, of information. I mean, there's a number of things which uh, Ms. Walensky has said about about our system, which uh, you know I appreciate the comments that she's made. I could make equally strong comments with respect to the American system. Uh, uh, with she says our system may be fraying after 20 years. I don't think your system is fraying. I think your system is falling apart. I think when you've got 90 million people who either don't have any insurance or are dramatically underinsured, uh, you're the only, only industrialized country in the Western world that's in such a situation. Uh, it may be that, that the, the, the country that's out of step with what's going on in the rest of the world is the United States and, and, and not everyone else. Let's go uh, we accept, respond. We, we accept me, a pri Let me just say yeah. one thing. We accept a, a public-private partnership. That's essential. Uh, the, 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 the argument, for example, that President Bush makes that, that in a, what he calls a nationalized system, the only thing that's, that's made, been made public in our system effectively is the system of insurance. We have one sh insurer in every province. We've dramatically reduced the administrative costs of the system. Our, our administrative costs are bureaucratic costs. The cost of bureaucracy, which I would have thought would be inter of interest to America, is about 25% uh, per capita of what your costs are. That's where the savings come in. But all the other stuff about how Canadians can't choose their own doctor, or how we don't have access to technology, or how you know people die waiting for operations, this this is the this is cliche-ridden stuff. It does not describe the system that I think well, most Canadians understand and see instinctively and see happening all around us. And of course, that was Bob Ray back in 1992. Well, it is now 2009, and you know I actually thought I could go through these articles and go through them in detail. This is just stuff I collected in my uh, folder on healthcare over the last, what, three, four months? Uh, well, maybe since the beginning of the year, at least since February. And these are just the headlines. Quote, brain operation axed with LHSC out of cash, February 19th, London Free Press. 
cancelled surgery on brain now ago, February 20th. 09, London Free Press. Of course, once you get in the public, if you squeak that wheel, you will get what you need. System failing young cancer patients. Report, April 17th, National Post. Hospital ER debacle. Debacle. <laughs> Unnoticed until death, now famed. Oh, I guess that was about the, the poor guy that died in, uh, in one of the uh, op- uh, waiting rooms. I think that was in Winnipeg, and that's in the National Post, September 27th. This was a very sad story. She didn't get a fair shake, read the headline, where Peter Wilson questions why his frail wife spent so much time in the emergency department and in great pain before she died. March 30th, London Free Press. Senior refused medical care was the heading in the April 25th Free Press. Died because he didn't seek treatment in the right geographical area. It's like the school system, and you gotta send your kids to the right school. Daughter's death sparked patient safety crusader. It took her more than six years to get an explanation, which is talking about a woman whose 22-year-old daughter died as a result of a doctor's mistake. Fast treatment of brain bleed may have saved actors' life. London Free Press, March 20th, and Star's death fuels U.S. healthcare debate, a blow to Medicare, National Post, April 6th, with each of the last two headlines about Natasha Richardson's skiing death that we might have just recalled in the recent past. Police reviewing 911 calls after man dies waiting for medics, National Post. A child's death, a legal odyssey, Mississauga mother's epic fight, nears end, National Post. Botched tests fail patients, London Free Press, March 409. And then these two letters to the editor, which I do have to stop, pause on for a moment, because hearing it straight from the horse's mouth is a little different than reading a, a report. This is London Free Press, April 4th. And the heading on the, on the letter by Patricia Stevenson of London reads, The healthcare system killed my mother. And here's what she wrote. I feel deeply for Peter Wilson and his family for their loss, referring, of course, to uh, the one about she didn't get a fair shake. Sadly, this situation is not new in London, especially for our elderly patients. People realize this only when their aged loved ones are in desperate need. In 2007, early one Saturday morning, my elderly mother was taken to the ER at University Hospital with a broken hip. After 15 hours, she received a bed. Surgery had to be done at Victoria Hospital, but it was Tuesday before mom's condition was stable enough. Then Victoria had neither bed nor operating room time for her. All this time, mom was in absolute agony. And this is your future, folks. Listen to this. Repeatedly begging my sister and me to help her. Morphine gave intermittent relief. Finally, surgery was performed at, at Victoria on Friday night, nearly one week after admittance, but it was too late. Mom died in the recovery room. Timely surgery may have given our mom a better chance to live and avoided a solid week of misery. So now, when someone asks me how my mother died, I simply tell them that our health care system killed her. End quote. And then there's one by Alfred Cordell, London, also of London, April 4th, 09. Healthcare falls short, he writes, and he says, Regarding the column, local hospital restructuring paying off in improved care, I beg to differ, or at least to say the care is not nearly as perfect as you think. I say this based on huge shortcomings and errors and absences of quote-unquote caring by numerous doctors and nurses in the whole hospital quote-unquote system in the treatment between 2005 and 2006 of my dear late wife. Remembering her terrible, avoidable 
pain and suffering. I will never again make a donation to a London hospital, end quote. Uh, very sad stories, you know, and, and they used to be very, very, very rare to hear something like this, and they're just becoming more and more routine. And, you know, I know that all the time, you're not going to be reading stories in the newspaper about, oh, man, gets great health care, he walks out of the hospital, he feels much better, you know. But this fellow, you know, he says, I'm not going to make a donation to a London hospital. Well, oh, yeah, do you pay your taxes? Then you're donating to the system that treated your spouse that way. You know, I've often wondered if the reason that so many Canadians don't know about the state of their health care system is that many of the people who would have the best inside stories on the issue are for the most part no longer with us. And as they say, the dead do not tell tales. It's only the survivors who we can turn to for their opinions on their various experiences. And then here from the uh, uh, National Post, Sing No Praise reads the July 4th heading National Post, accompanying an article written by Ben Kaplan. And the subheading reads, After Brush With Death, Opera Star Has Harsh Words for Canadian Healthcare. And it discusses the delay in getting surgery that ultimately saved her life has transformed outspoken Canadian opera singer, Meisha Brueggersgrossman, I think that's how you pronounce the name, into an outspoken critic of the failings of the Canadian healthcare system. As patients, she says, we're made to feel like we should be thankful for whatever we get. By the way, that's yet another symptom of altruism, which I talk about a lot. But that's a lie which keeps our health care system from improving. We've been lazy in keeping our health care system accountable because it's free. But you get what you pay for, she says. I felt like I was doomed from the start. Her most dramatic health experience began a few weeks ago when she was waiting for her husband at a restaurant and began to feel tightness in her throat. She returned home as the pressure spread to her shoulders, jaw, and arms. She collapsed in her kitchen and describes how emergency medical technicians rushed her to the hospital on a gurney after her blood pressure reached 270 over 180. Upon entering St. Joseph's Hospital, she was calm. This quickly changed. She remembers being hooked up to an IV, given drugs, and recalls telling them about her medical history. All the while, she was convinced the tear in her aorta was widening. One of the major problems with our healthcare system, she says, is that doctors often don't know or trust their patients, end quote. And at this point, the story goes on to say how she was released originally from the hospital, and it wasn't until she saw her family physician that anything meaningful was done. She returned for sur- surgery, etc., etc., but she survived. And then there's a headline, Ailing System, in the National Post, January 17, Healthcare Mistakes Blamed for Up to 23,000 Patient Deaths a Year. And it has a full page of hospital horror stories. And my confidence in public health care certainly was not buoyed by this headline, quote, Checklists Cut Surgical Mistakes by a Third. Modeled on Pilots, National Post, (laughs) January 15, I'm thinking, good heavens, Even I do a checklist before I come in and do this program every week. And that's what I'm looking at right now is my checklist as we take a break at the bottom of the show here. And uh, what you'll be hearing next is a clip from uh, April of uh, 2007, April 15th, from CTV News discussing Canadian health care abroad. And when we return on the other side, we will continue with our theme. Some other Canadians with medical problems are joining a growing trend in their search for the help they desperately need. A company called Surgical Tourism is offering hope to those frustrated by long delays in this country. CTV followed one man who waited for years for help in Canada and then decided to go overseas. CTV's medical specialist Avis Favreau has his story. The pain is etched in Jeff Clark's face. It's been chronic pain, like everyday pain for about four years now. 
if it wasn't for um, the narcotics and the pain management uh, I'm on, I wouldn't be able to walk. He lives with severe back pain, likely caused by work injuries. But no one in the Canadian healthcare system has been willing or able to ease his suffering. I've seen anywhere from three to four surgeons over uh, almost a three-year three period. Um, each time I waited a year to see these surgeons. And um, once I did see them, there was, they had nothing to offer. One day he saw this. World-class surgeons can perform surgeries almost immediately. An ad offering surgery in a matter of weeks at a hospital in India. A company appropriately called Surgical Tourism. Surgery for $15,000 Canadian with four weeks of rehab in a five-star hotel. So Jeff left the delays and uncertainty of Canadian healthcare for the Apollo Hospital in Chennai, India, where tests quickly showed he had two severely damaged discs. The agency coordinating Jeff's operation says business is booming. When we started about two years ago, as you know, we only had the odd case, uh, you know, here and there. Since January 2007, it has gone up to seven, eight patients a month, and it's increasing every month. Less than a week after his surgery, Jeff is clearly better. I feel surprisingly excellent. I was always bent over, now I'm right straight up and stronger than I was. It's the kind of happy ending that makes for good advertising. But Canadian doctors urge caution. There's a risk involved, but first of all, um, is the surgery the right thing to do? Is, the, uh, is it uh, really going to work? You're going to a, a place where uh, you don't know the doctor. You arrive on a plane and uh, you get off the plane and there's the doctor. Uh, you don't know what type of rules and regulations govern their practice. But two months after his surgery, Jeff is certain it was worth taking the chance. I haven't been on any pain medication now since the first week after surgery, and I've been doped up like a horse for six years. I, I, it's, I got more than I ever could have dreamt of, really. Jeff says he's seen the future of Canadian health care, and for some, it may not be in Canada anymore. Avis Favreau, CTV News, Toronto. week I've had. The other day my girlfriend broke her ankle. We had to go to the emergency room. We're in the waiting room. How many people have ever been to this room before? You have? How long were you in there, sir? Three and, a half. Three and a half. We were there for six hours. I was going insane. At one point, though, I noticed a sign on the wall that said, if condition worsens, contact nurse. Immediately, I wanted to smash my girlfriend's head against the wall. <laughs> Maybe get boosted up a couple notches. <laughs> Excuse me, nurse. My girlfriend broke her ankle and now her head's bleeding. Can we go next? Two more, two more, honey. Two more. Just an example of how the frustration with waiting lists is finally making itself heard in the comedy circuit. You, you would never hear anybody cracking jokes about the healthcare system until very recently. That was Chris Quigley, of course. Um, and I'm Bob Metz. We're here on Just Right CHRW 94.9 FM or 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to join in on the conversation. From the National Post, January 27th, Medicare made in India. Interesting enough, which relates to the clip we just heard before the break, where it is noted that, quote, one consultant firm estimates that in 2008, 
nearly 1.5 million Americans oh, and 100,000 Canadians sought out-of-country treatment. But soon, even Canadians who never set foot abroad may come to rely on foreign physicians. This week, we learned that at least one Canadian clinic has begun outsourcing the reading of diagnostic scan results to North American-trained doctors working in India. Now, there's an interesting comment. He's talking about uh, North American-trained doctors working in India, whereas the doctor who was trying to defend Canada's health care system in the clip we heard earlier was talking about, um, oh, Canadians shouldn't go to India. They don't know what, how their doctors are trained. They don't know the doctor as if they know them here when they walk into a clinic, you know, like <laughs> as if it's any different. And... Um, Anyways, and then it, the article continues, despite an increase in public spending on health of more than $100 billion over the past five years, government health departments have not been able to keep up with rapid technological change. There is no way to tax away enough money from productive sectors and workers to pay for the egalitarian blueprints of Medicare devotees. Investors motivated by the scent of profits were required. But because they are shunned under our healthcare system, the necessary capital never appeared, and the newest generations of high-tech medical machinery were never bought, or at least not bought in sufficient quantity to treat all Canadians quickly. And that's just basically one of the many things that continues to go on. You know, with all the socialized healthcare people are trying, what are they, what are they always trying to emulate? Something that the free market already can do quite well. Now we're going to take a break quickly to the next break here because i uh, got a couple of important clips here. Now this first one you're going to hear is about waiting lists and was recorded in, uh, and it's off TVO Studio 2 here in Ontario, and it was uh, broadcast August 29th in 2005, four years ago. And then coming out on the other side of the bumper, you will hear uh, Dr. Tom Dorman speaking on waiting lists. And uh, this was actually taped here at the University of Western Ontario back in the year 2000 at the um, Society for International Liberty Conference, of which I was part. And that's why uh, I've played some clips from Dr. Tom Dorman, who, by the way, is a practicing physician who has worked in England, worked in Canada, and worked in the United States. So we'll be back after this. We hear a lot of talk about wait times, but that, that's actually a very slippery concept because in general a lot of these wait lists are kept by specialists in their office so what it means is what is the, how many people are waiting for that particular physician to do a surgery it doesn't say that there's there's under capacity in that city for example there may be other surgeons who have excess capacity and so one of the problems we have is the services are too much in the hands of specialists and we're seeing a bad use of resources Access to private health care really has been around in some form or other for about 20 years. It started with what you'd call diagnostic services, MRIs and things like that. But getting into the whole business of, of uh, delivery of things like orthopedic surgery, new knees and this more serious stuff, that's relatively new. If people aren't getting access, they'll go elsewhere and they are going elsewhere. So in a sense, governments have created the conditions for the emergence of private services by creating artificial wait times and unacceptable backlogs in the public system. People have been waiting for knee replacements in varying stages of distress. Their lives have been overtaken by pain and inability to function normally. 
I feel that the health care system has totally let me down. Uh, this is the first time in my life where I have needed the system and it's not there for me. Um, even with the uh, implementation of the health care tax, I remember Premier McGuinty promising that these backlogs would be addressed, dealt with and eliminated. And in fact, the lists are growing. What Mary May Lou described as the problems you're having now with control and, and uh, rationing, she didn't use that word, of course is a consequence of this political action, this irresponsibility from my point of view, the lack of following logical economic uh, processes. So what are the issues which are, effect which are regulatory, which are cons of concern in um, <clears throat> in centralized medicine. Well, money dominates the decision. There is no individual responsibility. I believe people should take care of their own health and make decisions for themselves, and obviously that's comfortable with an audience such as this. Entitlement leads to greed. I think that's also self-evident, because if you provide something free, the demand is unlimited, and therefore eventually the resources have to run out. Now that is so self-evident that it's surprising that the Minister of Health of Ontario, or if you like to go back in time, Otto von Bismarck, circa 1885, when he introduced the first socialist medical system to then the, the Kaiser's empire, didn't understand that. Or perhaps they did understand it. And when it was introduced in Canada and is being introduced in the United States, does the Clinton administration not understand this observation? Are they total fools? Of course, the answer is they do understand it, and therefore there has to be another reason for the introduction of this economically unviable process. Well, people become chattels. You see, the example Melu gave, the people, the, the folk are chattels. They don't have control of their own health nor do they have the option of using their own wealth for their own interest or their own priorities. Costs, of course, rise because the bureaucracy interferes with the efficient uh, transfer of uh, commodities and services. And when the minister arrives at the point that he is now, 20 years after the example I gave you, regulations ensue. Hence, the punitive action against the person who wanted to have an operation at her own at her own cost. And rationing aggravates the social stress because increasing strife occurs, people jump the queue, the wealthy go to America as long as the services are still free there. But watch for it, the, the North American Freed Trade Federation will almost certainly close that loophole and you'll be having to travel to Costa Rica somewhere. Uh, and the people who are ag aggrieved uh, and who've uh, dissipated their resources in paying taxes for the system, of course, call for more regulation. And the final outcome is that healthcare worsens. I'll talk for, me, for a few moments about the misnomer healthcare. And finally, of course, liberty suffers. 
And of course, that is the bottom line of the whole healthcare system. I had a caller just off the air there calling, talking about a possible solution would be to put waiting lists on the internet. So you knew where you stood in line. Although, of course, there could be some privacy issues with that. But again, there are ways to get around that as well. Uh, healthcare cures are fast and furious coming from many people, but I think a lot of them may be putting us in a worse situation than we're in. Although some of the principles are in place. For example, here's Dr. Keith Martin, Liberal MP from Vancouver Island in the National Post, April 7th, in, uh, under an editorial, Europe's answer to our healthcare problem. And now this our healthcare problem being Canada's. Uh, you know, U.S. is looking at Canada for a solution to their health care problem. We're looking at Europe for, toward a solution to our health care problem. And we don't know where Europe's looking. But he writes, quote, In Europe, patients are placed at the center of the health care system. European hospitals are not paid solely by block funding, i.e. a lump sum of money that doesn't take into account the demands made of them. Instead, hospitals receive monies for services rendered. The medical system therefore treats patients as an asset because resources are provided for treating each person. Now, I listen to that description, I'm going, isn't that just like a free market? That's how the old pay-yourself <laughs> system worked. They're trying to imitate it by force. And, of course, that's what uh, Dr. Dorman just talked about. People become treated as chattels under a socialized system, and they're trying to again put the patient at the center of the system in Europe which is a nice uh, notion but you can't do it while, while the government's still involved in the way it is. When Europeans hear that Canadians, and this again is Dr. Keith Martin talking, when Europeans hear that Canadians tolerate atrocious waiting lists of 9 to 12 months or more for care and endure the pain, suffering and loss of function that accompanies these wait times, they are shocked. If they were confronted with these delays in Europe, people would be storming government offices. Canadians must fully grasp the following truths, he writes. Demographic pressures brought on by an aging population and more expensive technologies are outstripping the supply of money that governments have to pay for health care. This structural shortfall, it's not structural, it's actually a moral shortfall, but we'll talk about that later, will certainly be exasperated by the current global economic downturn. Number two, the Canada Health Act and its five principles that govern health care in Canada, public admin, administration, comprehensiveness, universality, portability, and accessibility, is broken in every province every day, he writes. And he writes, we actually have a mixed system, which is just like our mixed economy, but it is not integrated in a way that supports our public system. And he writes, the status quo is actually contributing to the creeping privatization of our public system and a decline in the services that are covered. That's funny, as if creeping privatization were a problem. And as if, we, if that's the way, we should be going towards more of that. But. And he says, a lesson we should learn from Europeans is that the absence of competition leads to inefficiencies in our health care system, a dearth of innovation and compromised care. End quote. And, you know, when I read something like that, to expect competition within government control is a completely oxymoronic concept. But nevertheless, they continue on. And then there's Dr. Brian Day once again, this time writing uh, from Vancouver, May 11, 2009, letter to the editor, National Post, Canada needs a better health care system, he says. And he writes, here I sit. Charged with having perpetrated the highest of traitorous acts against Canada, I dared to say our Canadian health care system should be better. 
No, what is galling is that there are still people in this country who would rather ignore any effort or idea that might improve our health care system and offer more timely access to health care for every Canadian, regardless of their ability to pay. What is most galling is that there remain union-backed groups in this country who would argue selfishly against any effort to build a better health care system. I have repeatedly stated that all Canadians should receive timely access to necessary care, regardless of ability to pay. Putting patients first is the only solution for the problems that plague Canada's health care system. In Canada, I have called for better long-term planning and depoliticization of our health care system and its transformation into one in which patients are its masters rather than its servants. Ideology has no place in the treatment of patients, concludes Dr. Day. And with that utterly indefensible and contradictory statement, Dr. Day completely undermines every argument, he says. Uh, Just what is offering a service regardless of ability to pay, if not ideology? It's nothing but ideology. How many services do you know that people just give away for free? (laughs) <laughs> you know anybody who does that? To offer some service for which they do not pay means to force others to pay for that service. This is the ideology of communism. You can't avoid it. And you can't say, oh, we've got a political system and we don't want any ideology. Come on. To say that you want to depoliticize a system that's based on government funding is so contradictory, you've got to question the credentials and sanity of anybody who's saying it. How do you depoliticize a healthcare system without being completely capitalistic? It's not possible otherwise. The ideology that Dr. Day is quite loudly preaching here is called pragmatism. And, you know, I would like to agree with Dr. Day that this ideology has no place in our healthcare system. But what Dr. Day is actually saying when he says ideology has no place in the treatment of patients is that the ideology of capitalism has no place there. Because in being pragmatic, pragmatic, he's heading straight for communism or fascism or both, which is their prevailing ideology of the day, pardon the pun. So, you know, these are not answers. These are just worse, worse, worse solutions. CMA pushes European-style health care, a mix of private public services seen as reducing wait times, writes Tom Blackwell in the National Post. And he refers to Dr. Robert Ouellette, the president of the Canadian Medical Association, says he wants Canadians to open their minds to different ways of looking at health care, arguing that the current system is not sustainable otherwise. Western Europe's a good region to examine because unlike the United States, its countries have universal Medicare that ensures equal access to health care regardless of the patient's ability to pay. But Michael McBain, spokesman for the union-affiliated healthcare coalition, accused the Montreal radiologist of, quote, cherry-picking aspects of the European systems that suit his market-oriented philosophy in ignoring others, such as the fact that many of those countries have higher taxes than Canada to fund health care and more extensive social safety nets to contribute to better health. He wants a Swedish health care system on American tax rates. That's completely disingenuous. I would argue it's intellectually dishonest concludes the union spokesman. McBain then went on to accuse Dr. Roulette to be in conflict of interest by promoting private medicine since he's the founder of Canada's first private CT scan clinic and owner of other private facilities. Fortunately for Mr. McBain, as a spokesman of a union, he obviously has no conflict of interest in advocating a government-run system. (laughs) Give me a break, as John Stossel would say. And of course, uh, this just goes on. One last quick one look here. Uh, Linda Silas, our uh, registered nurse, president, Canadian Federation of Nurses Union in Ottawa, in a letter to the editor of National Post on November uh, 4th, 08, wrote, 
Uh, quote, evidence, not religion, from around the world shows that a two-tier system results in a mediocre public system and a superior private system. France holds the European record for hospitalization in for-profit private hospitals. One of these hospitals is owned by a U.S. investment fund and demands a return on capital above 20%. What cost to patients does a 20% return on investment demand? France gives us one clue. Exorbitant extra billing, which has reached $3 billion a year. That's $3 billion more for doctors and corporate shareholders and $3 billion less for sick people and their families. If advocating for equity, justice, fairness, and access for equal health care for all is a religion, then what is advocating for more profit, end quote, she writes. Well, I would answer her thusly. It is survival and it is just. There can be no justice whatever in forcing non-users to pay for services given to users who do not have to pay. It's also not true that two-tier systems result in a mediocre public system and a superior private system. Private is always superior to government. What she really objects to is the visibility that results when you put them side by side. That's the problem. You could take away all the private systems and it wouldn't improve the public health care system in the least. And as to her economically illiterate argument that doctors in France have three billion more while patients have three billion less, that negates the whole idea of trade, you know, value for value. After all, if the French patients didn't want to pay the extra, they wouldn't have to. And it's the fact they choose to do so that always riles the real thieves in the healthcare system, those who want a non-user pay system. What about leaving the billions in their pockets before they, before they get sick, you know, so that after they get sick they will have that health care? That's all for today, and it's certainly not all on this issue because we've just gotten started. That was just a snapshot look, and we'll continue with that again on a future show. But for now, we've got to go. And so I hope we'll join you again next week. Hope I'll still be okay. Until then, be right, act right, do right, stay right, and think right. See you then. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be I almost became a doctor, actually. I uh, became a comic instead. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, they say laughter is the best medicine, so that sort of makes me a doctor, I think. <laughs> That's pretty much the same response my father gave me. Uh...